0: Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. David Johnson is a lawyer, teacher, and writer. His fascinating career path has taken him from Miami courtrooms in the 80s to general counsel roles for Silicon Valley startups in the 90s, and now teaching and research posts at Stanford Law School in Stanford Design School, known as the D School. His interest in design began in a GC job for a consultancy that was applying design thinking for business advice. This eventually led to his D School class, Negotiation by Design. Today, he's applying design thinking learnings, not just to the wicked problems facing legal, but to the even bigger problems facing climate change in his new book, Climate Activism by Design which brings design thinking to citizen activists responding to the climate change crisis. His most recent article, Design for Legal Systems, was published by the Singapore Academy of Law. In today's conversation, you'll learn more about how design thinking can help with the development and improvement of human systems, how design thinking can help lawyers think more collaboratively, and how it can move us from the feeling of individual powerlessness to a collaborative power in an attempt to solve massive problems such as climate change. Dave, thank you very much for joining. It's great to meet you.
1: Likewise, Stephen, I really appreciate the invitation to join you. I'm fascinated by what you and your law firm are doing in this space.
0: Well, I'm fascinated by the work you've been doing in design and the application of design thinking to legal systems and legal structures. You've been a lawyer your entire professional life and had an eclectic career is how I think
1: I've heard you describe
0: it. What made you want to be a lawyer to begin with?
1: My dad. My dad which is not an uncommon answer, I think, for a lot of people for what they end up doing in life. But mine was a little bit circuitous. My dad was a professor of medicine and we moved around the country quite a bit because he kept getting better jobs at universities. So I'm what they call a university brat, I guess. But we were at the dinner table one day. I had two older sisters, both of whom were in college at the time. I was in high school and I had always thought I was just going to go into medicine. I didn't give it a whole lot of thought. It just seemed interesting to me, blah, blah, blah. Well, one of my sisters brought up a topic from college and I decided to argue with her a little bit, uh, you know, in the positive sense of the word argue. And after <laughs> that had happened, my dad turned to me, made a few words, turned to me and he said, you ever think about being a lawyer? And that's when it stuck in my head that, Hey, you know, maybe that's something I should think about. I went to college and and found organic chemistry particularly difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't we all? (laughs) (laughs) And that, I guess, was the beginning of that road. If I had it to do over again, I would have been an English literature major. I didn't pick that major, but that's the only regret I think I have of making those kinds of decisions through college and then on to post-college education.
0: You went to school in Miami, uh, your law school in Miami, and then stayed there for not quite ten years to litigate cases before coming back to the West Coast, where I think you're from the West Coast originally, the Seattle area.
1: Yeah, University of Washington was my dad's first post. Yeah,
0: yeah, that was. I, I gather
1: that was quite the experience litigating in the '80s in in Miami. It was, and for those in the audience who certainly know enough about Miami in the '80s to know that it was a hectic place. And it was the center of the drug trade in the United States at the time. I can tell you from firsthand experience that Miami actually cleaved into at least two separate worlds. One was what I would call, or we called the dark side. And then the rest was, you know, normal civil society. And rarely did those two meet. It was pleasant and interesting in that way. So you would read in the newspaper about things going on and being in law, we would read about things happening in the courtrooms. I remember sitting in the back of a federal courtroom once when I had a bench trial going, of all things, in admiralty, a bench trial in federal court in admiralty going on. And the judge was filling slots In a kingpin, you'll remember back in the old days that there was a federal kingpin statute. And so they were prosecuting a kingpin for a life sentence and our little admiralty case was used to knock down two or three hour gaps in the judge's calendar when things, you know, had to break in the criminal case or he sent the jury home. Sometimes we'd go, you know, late, that sort of thing. We were just gap fillers <laughs> and uh, we were like the comedian that comes out before Stephen Colbert, I guess, to warm up the audience or something. I don't know. But it forced me to sit and watch, you know, one of the biggest Drug kingpin trials that I had ever seen. But beyond that, you no, know, the, the worlds didn't intersect a whole lot. I was doing pretty much straightforward civil litigation, a lot of commercial stuff. There was a lot of construction going on at the time. So it's was, it was pretty ordinary stuff. The courtrooms were accessible, which is something that is no longer true in most big cities. You know, we could get from complaint to trial within 12, 14 months if we really pushed it. In other words, the courtroom for trial was ready before the case was, which is you know that, that, that unheard of anymore. Yeah. Uh, truth be told, so it was a great place to really get my time in the courtroom and learn how to do it very much firsthand. But I want to dispel the myth that it was it was all you know drugs and partying in Miami in the '80s or even now. But those are the stories that hit the news, and that's sort of how the city got painted and. TV shows like Miami Vice and then movies like Scarface didn't help. (laughs) It was a nice run, but I knew I wanted to come back to the West Coast sooner or later. So
0: you came back to the West Coast and by and large in the in the 90s, you had a number of general counsel positions.
1: Yeah. So I came back to go to school at Stanford and I knew I wanted to leave Miami at some point. And as I started thinking about it, I realized, well, if I'm going to go to another state, I have to take another bar. I have to take another bar that six to 12 months shot right there. So if I have to use six to 12 months, then why not do a degree? So I started shopping around for an advanced degree in environmental law and science because truth be told, the reason I went to Miami was to do a dual degree, JD LLM at the Rosenstiel School of Atmospheric Sciences in Miami. And it was only after I got there that I found out that I had to do four years. I couldn't do it all in three years. I thought I could do it all, you know, compress, do two degrees in three years. And, you know, I kind of lacked the understanding that they needed that fourth year of tuition and whatever. And so my loans ran out and I had to do three years, take the JD and go to work. So the unfinished business was that environmental advanced degree. So that's what I went back to Stanford to do. And I was interested in academia. I thought about going into professional academia, but it just so happened that in 1997, 98, 99, when I finished school, just happened to be when the dot-com boom started in Silicon Valley. And it was almost irresistible to jump into the mix and see what was going on. And that's a decision I don't regret. You know, you always leave one option behind, almost always leave one option behind if you choose another. Sometimes you can loop back around, but I was willing to take the dive and I don't regret it at all. I worked for Fenwick and West for a few years and then went in-house and did, I think, five, five GC gigs over about 15 years, something like that.
0: That's a fascinating run of uh, different functions between being a trial lawyer, being a GC, being at Fenwick and West, being in school. Your academic work now focuses on design thinking and design application. What do you draw from those experiences that informs your current thinking
1: my interest in design thinking uh, actually began with a gc job that i did for a consultancy in silicon valley that was applying design thinking for business advice and i won't take too deep a dive but if uh, anybody in the audience has ever heard of ernst and young's solutions accelerator environments ase's and those were the product of the consultancy that I worked for, and they applied design thinking to solving systems problems in organizations, usually organizations that were trying to retool a culture, uh, reorganize a division, sometimes reorganize the entire organization if it wasn't too clumsy and big with something called design shops, a three-day process that they, they took the people through. So that was what really sparked my interest in design and design thinking as applied to businesses and then law. I was teaching negotiation at the law school starting in 2008, and it was 2014 when I met folks at the design school, what we call the D school at Stanford, and we came up with a class called negotiation by design, which the way I described it at the beginning was imagine a particle accelerator and we took negotiation on the one end and we took design thinking on the other end and we just smashed them into each other and tried to see what popped out. And it turned out to be a pretty apt description. We developed it into a course and we've taught that now for six years straight and it seems to be working well. And there is a lot of design thinking that has applicability to negotiation for sure my own personal thinking and what I've started writing about is less about applying design or design thinking to, let's say, uh, legal tech, technologies that may help lawyers do work better, do work faster, that sort of thing. I think there's a lot of great companies, startups mostly out there doing that kind of work. And I admire it a lot. And I talk to those people a lot. In fact, this term, I have one of those CEOs in my negotiation class. But my interest is in trying to figure out how design thinking can help lawyers think more creatively, think more collaboratively, think uh, in a more holistic way to better do what I know lawyers do, whether they're in the courtroom. Whether they're working on, you know, intellectual property licenses or whether they're doing M and A or working in house, uh, doing a whole, a whole variety of things. It's a mindset. It's a way to approach seeing problems. It's also a way to invite others, whether they be lawyers or non-lawyers into a thinking space to help with problem solution. So that's kind of, that's kind of where my academic interest is. I have not published yet anything definitive on how does one go about doing that. And that's certainly going to come when I feel ready to put that down on paper. I published a piece for the Singapore Academy of Law last year that is more theoretical than that because I felt like I needed to start by getting my theoretical basis, you know, down on the ground. And that article is designed for legal systems in the Singapore
0: Academy of Law. Yes, with Singapore Academy a Law Journal.
1: Yeah, if anybody in the audience has insomnia, it's a good place to go. To.
0: <laughs> it'll it'll teach you about Schrodinger's cat. So
1: <laughs> it will actually, yeah,
0: yeah. Let's talk about that article for a little bit. And for those, we'll put a link to it in the show notes for anybody who's interested. And you can also get it on Dave's website, which we'll also post on the show notes. But you talk in the article about the challenge uncertainty brings for lawyers. And the use of design thinking to help deal with uncertainty. And certainly that's one of the challenges that our organization has faced, dealing with that management of uncertainty and the use of design thinking or lean Six Sigma thinking to help lawyers solve it because lawyers are inherently uncomfortable with uncertainty. So first, expand a little bit on what you mean by design thinking. You just did it a little bit. But we're not just talking about how stuff looks. We're talking about how it works. And the way it operates.
1: The way I look at design thinking may be different from the way others do. I've seen a lot of attempts to define design thinking, and I think it's elusive in that way. But first, I'd say design thinking is not the same as design or design work. I think of, and pardon the puns, I see design thinking more as the engine or perhaps even blueprint for how we, when we are solving problems, can think like designers think when they approach their problems. And we can develop designed solutions to problems akin to the problems that designers solve. And I'm going to stop there for a second and go back 10, 15 years. Design thinking sort of emerged out of the engineering department at Stanford and initially was focused on making products making tangible things. And the comment that you just made about, it's not about how it looks, but how it works, of course, comes from Steve Jobs, who was well-known, of course, for making pretty objects. But as design thinking emerged and was used and applied to product design, it also found its own feet in other spaces. And that's when the d.school arose to borrow, for lack of a better phrase, design thinking principles and move them over to other subject areas aside from pure engineering areas. So its initial DNA is for sure in the, the development of tangible things. And my interest is in the possibilities of design thinking. For the development and improvement or creation of intangible things, mostly human systems. And so with that caveat, I see design thinking as the engine, the motor for collaborative problem solving for less tangible or intangible problems and their solutions, mostly human problems and human solutions, which seems to be to be a very good fit for what lawyers do. It starts with a designer's mindset, which is. There's better articles that I can describe on designer's mindset out there. And I think the dSchool website even has some really nice explanations and descriptions for how the designer's mindset works. But it's basically allowing ourselves to be open and vulnerable, honest, collaborative, sharing, positive, willing to fail, willing to fail iteratively on the path to improvement. A little bit more nonlinear than most of us lawyers, myself included, are taught to think, which is something that I emphasized in my article because it was primarily for the, the audience for that article was primarily the Singapore legal community. And one of the editors had told me, we think we are stuck in this overly structured, linear pathway of teaching students how to become lawyers. And that devolves into their very linear thinking approach to doing law, practicing law. And we'd like to make that shift. We'd like to, we see the possibilities and the opportunities to make that shift from structured learning without a whole lot of collaboration Between students or among students and teachers. And we'd like to move in a direction that we feel is the future for better lawyering. And we want to start in the classroom. Now I've wandered all over the place there and I've lost complete track of the question that you gave me.
0: (laughs) That's all right. It was fascinating to, to go down the path with you. You, you listed a number of characteristics that design thinking is designed to facilitate collaboration, flexibility, willingness to fail to fail iteratively. Those are not traits lawyers are known to possess in abundance. How do you, and perhaps Singapore is a good example of this, but how do you get people to open their minds to a different way of thinking, a different way of approaching, understanding that this way of thinking can actually be a solution to some of these problems as opposed to change for simply change sake. It's it's not broken. Why would we change it?
1: Well, I'll start by saying I recognize as well as anyone that what lawyers do, you know, as the old saying goes, is is juggling live ammunition. And that's not a place where you experiment for failure. So there's a difference between experimenting and for failure that leads to improvement, which has to happen in, you know, what, what I would call the QA lab. Every tech company has their lab where they try and break things. And that's where it would happen. So the classroom, of course, is the first place. You know, that's why I like teaching at the D school and having law students in those classes to show them the advantages of practicing in a practice environment, whether it's negotiation or other kinds of problem solving. But that said, I know there's limitations in the practice of law to how much lawyers can experiment, uh, fail and experiment again. But there are ways to do it. And one of them is, rein- I wouldn't say reinventing, but Taking a look, for example, in litigation at mooting arguments and using test juries, which is focus groups, which is something that most lawyers do on cases that are, you know, where it's warranted. But there are ways to be more creative and perhaps be more productive in doing those sorts of things. In other words, designing that process, redesigning that process for a little bit more efficacy. And there's, A lot of opportunity, I think, internally within the law firm to think about how the system that is a law firm, and I love to think about law firms as systems because there's so much interactivity and there's so much institutional knowledge that seems caught in silos when, if it could be distributed across departments, across the organization, Cross offices of an organization, I think could be used. How am I going to say this? That is far, far short of Pareto optimality. The asset that is a law firm isn't just the skill of any one lawyer or any pair of lawyers or any department. The asset of the law firm is the collective institutional knowledge. And you know, I learned this not by being in law firms, but I learned this by being in companies. It's in companies where you see the value of multidisciplinary work where you bring people into the room from marketing, from product development, from engineering, from legal, from finance, and you put them in a room to address a problem, you see what happens when that is the place you start, as opposed to product development coming up with an idea, going to finance and saying, we need some money to do this. Here's what we want to do. Then they develop the product, then they go to marketing and say, we want you to try and sell this. And you do it in that kind of linear fashion, that's where you invite the mistake. So companies have quickly learned that getting multiple disciplinary groups working, you could call them tiger teams if you want, working in a Gantt chart sort of fashion is the pathway to not just more efficiency and less mistakes, but actually better products and sometimes innovation of products that wouldn't otherwise be spun up because of the absence of the multidisciplinary group, particularly, I will say, particularly if you make sure that that initial design group with multiple disciplines is also widely diverse. Because I think I said this in my article, the science really is in diverse work groups are simply better in a lot of ways. And I've seen it firsthand myself too many times to have any doubts left.
0: How did uh, design thinking influence your work is a, as a GC, as you are performing your roles, delivering legal services to the corporation. Was it in this context of these multidisciplinary collaborative groups or
1: was it applied? In- yeah, that's one way that it expressed itself. But I think the primary way is just the way I think in retrospect, it's how, you know, if a problem pops up on my email one day in my office and I pull out a sheet of paper and a pencil and I sit back and Take the time it takes to just try and get my head wrapped around the description of the problem and start, you know, sketching, for example, a stakeholder map, or I start thinking about multiple pathways that one could take to begin to begin. (laughs) I know that sounds silly, but that's really, that's something central that designers do. As an aside, we have at the D school, what we call core design abilities. Two of them, one of them I skipped over and I should have mentioned earlier called Navigating Ambiguity, which I wanted to touch on with respect to uncertainty. The one I'm going to talk about now is designing your design work. And there's a real emphasis on bringing your designer mindset to thinking about and testing the ways that you're going to begin your design or to begin your legal work. So I think the most profound place where it impacted me and impacted my work was sort of ab initio. You know, I, I hark back to, and this is going to be me breaking my elbow to pat myself on the back, but I'm going to tell the story anyway, because I think it, it speaks to this, which was, you know, I was in, an, in Fenwick. I'd been there a couple of years. I was a somewhat experienced lawyer, but I was new to the big firm Silicon Valley experience for sure. And I had my review with department head and she said, Dave, your biggest strength, which most lawyers do not have is you have a very powerful intuition. And you trust it. And I took that with a grain of salt, but I gave it to credence. And I think in retrospect that that was part and parcel of design thinking. I think intuition is an integrated part of design thinking. And it's not to say that if someone is more, you know, left brained and, and logic and quantitatively driven means they can't have good intuition. That's not true at all. But intuition is something you develop and working with design thinking and experimenting in design thinking courses or design sprints internally to try and address problems. You know, I've, I've been to, I won't name the law firm, it's not SafeHearth, or maybe you do have a little design lab in your firms, I don't know. But I have seen firms that have dedicated design rooms where it's sort of the more modern version of a war room where a team of lawyers can go. And that's where I think you do the collaboration, brainstorming, experimentation, iteration, prototype your solutions, iterate them again, that sort of work that is no risk, low risk, no risk, because it's all internal. But everybody goes through a process of thinking hard, thinking collaboratively and thinking without You know, ego or judgment about the problem that you're trying to solve. You know, it could be a particularly sticky acquisition or it could be a huge dollar arbitration that needs to be resolved before it goes to, it finally goes to the arbitrators and how to design the solution. I found this really helpful as a GC in dealing with patent litigation, which almost always resolves better with some sort of cross patent licensing deal rather than litigating so that one or both parties patents get disqualified. So, you know, there's lots of ways, but the the short answer is it starts within the lawyer's mind who has had some design thinking training that polishes a couple of new facets on the way that mind sees the world and sees problems.
0: I want to turn to your, your book that's coming out here in a second, Dave, but where do you see the role of the law school in inculcating this way of thinking into, into law students? You talk about Singapore and their desire to move away from a, a linear way of teaching. And you teach at the D school. and I know you also teach a little bit at the law school. What's the law school's responsibility for creating this kind of training?
1: I think there's certainly a place for it in law schools. I'm going to back up a little bit. I think the first step in this direction, was, and it was a good one. Uh, most of the audience probably familiar with this if they're working lawyers, was I don't know, it's about five, eight years ago now that the ABA created a requirement for all ABA approved law schools to require students to have at least eight credits of experiential coursework as part of the total credit package to graduate. And there's you know, a fairly rigorous definition of experiential and by and large, it's clinical work. You know, that's how law schools in the first iteration decided to get their experiential credits done for their students is clinical. I teach negotiation. It happens to be that the negotiation classes at the law school are also deemed experiential because of the way we do them, lots of simulations, et cetera, et cetera. I think the next step beyond that, which as some schools are doing more than others, are by taking on some more design thinking experimentation. I'm reminded of Professor who goes by the name of Kat Moon, Katrina Moon. I think at Vanderbilt, she's in Nashville. I think she's at Vanderbilt Law School.
0: She is at Vanderbilt. She's fabulous.
1: Yeah. So that pops into my mind as as one place where it's happening. It's obviously happening at Stanford. We have. A center for the legal practice. And one small project in the center is run by Margaret Hagan called the Legal Design Lab. And that teaches lawyers to think like designers. It teaches design thinking. Although I think some of that training is conveniently had 400 meters away at the D school, but what they do, what she does is finds projects in the, the general space of legal systems for students to work on. And one of the projects that's been very successful so far is the A to J access to justice project that create, has created, redesigned a pathway for people who don't have the means to hire a lawyer to still navigate the parts of the court system that they need to navigate landlord tenant being one, including eviction processes, small claims court being another. And at the same time, trying to improve the court systems to show the courts that there are systems that the courts could And the clerks and the administration of the courts could adopt that would help move cases more quickly, have them be adjudicated more fairly and honestly. And they found, I believe, I'm not connected to this project, but they, they found that using a system like the design lab put together actually was more efficient, even though more people were showing up in the courthouse and filing claims or making their positions known, it was more efficient than all of these default functions these default cases that were showing up because the system also requires lots of process and service and time has to happen before a judge can enter a default judgment. And so by avoiding the default judgment miasma By bringing the parties in, the judges could actually resolve disputes and enter uh, binding orders, and it turned out to be more efficient. They could process more cases, have higher throughput, et cetera, et cetera. So the legal design lab, I'm sure, has been looked at as a model for law schools around the country, if not around the world. I also know that Helsinki in Finland, University of Helsinki, is doing a great deal of work on applying design thinking and legal design concepts into the law school, into the classroom. So there's, there's, it has begun. My first answer would be if a law student has the ability to take a design thinking class, Somewhere, anywhere, that would be the first thing to do. Or if not that, at least jump into the websites for Stanford's D School or maybe even Cat Moon's website at Vanderbilt and just read and learn and look at videos about design thinking because there are video classes available on design thinking. I don't know if Coursera might have one, but there's, there's more and more material every day popping up on the internet that uh, can help law students learn a little bit more about the design thinking approach to problems.
0: In the few minutes we've got left, I want to turn our attention to a small challenger you're, you're biting off with your new book, which is called Climate Activism by Design, where you talk about applying design principles to the challenge of climate change and environmental activism. Give us just an overview of what we can expect from the book. What are your basic
1: themes? So the basic themes are negotiation, design, and activism. I am writing it with climate as an example of a major social problem for which I'm convinced the path forward has to be citizen activism, but it could just as easily, I think, apply and I may bring in examples with respect to global pandemic, but for me, more specifically in the US, systemic racism in not just policing, but in the judicial, in the legal system, the judicial system big social problems where activism is warranted. And what I aim to do, and and I'm hesitating a little bit, I want folks to know that this book is far from complete and I'm still working on it. And so things can change. <laughs> but what I want to do is provide the younger generation who are more likely to be activists about climate in particular, the sense of power that they possess when they work collaboratively. We're all overwhelmed with a sense of powerlessness, myself included, when we think about climate change, the devastating effects that we actually can see, and what can we individually do about it beyond recycling and composting. It's easy to fall into a sense of despair that there's nothing I can do. And there, there is nothing that any one individual really can do unless they're graced with enormous amount of power like the president of the United States. And even then, who knows? But the power lay in analogous to voting, the power lay in large numbers of people like-minded who seek to have certain social change happen. And what I want to do is explore how design can open doors to thinking about finding a co-founder, for lack of a better phrase, to work on a small environmental project in your neighborhood even, and then use technology, whether it be social media, clearing houses for information or the many, many, many nonprofit organizations that are working on climate change and try and scale the activity and share the information where it was successful in my town where. There's a good example, maybe that I can be more concrete. In Nigeria, a young woman decided to make it her mission in her town to make all the stores get rid of single-use plastic bags. And she succeeded. And her story got picked up in the newspaper. That story got picked up uh, globally by major newspapers overseas. And she started sharing her plan with others who are interested in it. And it goes, for lack of a better phrase, viral. Well, that's great. I mean, that's really great. That's one instance of one small piece of work that went viral and informed and encouraged others to do the same thing. Well, just imagine if we could collectively operate in a way that was aligned, highly aligned, working on a variety, the vast variety of different climate related environmental issues that we have, and then have this emergent property of scale that arises where we get a good percentage, even if it's a single digit percentage of a large population, it's a really big number of people who are actively working on bite-sized environmental projects. I think it's going to happen one way or the other. I want to try and nudge it to happen sooner than waiting for catastrophic events to start piling up before people actually take to the streets, take to corporations, take to their governments. You know, to be honest, I'm pleased to see the protests in the streets of Washington, D.C. right now that are happening because that means people do have a point at which they will get on their feet and go out in the streets and make their collective voice known. So my book is going to be an exploration of how design thinking can move us from the feeling of individual powerlessness to collaborative power and then ways that we can use law, we can use technology we can use designer mindset to further all of that energy towards the corporations and governments that ultimately need to be the ones to make change that's going to be the gist of the book
0: well no small challenge you're you're biting off yeah but i look forward to reading it when it comes out we've run out of time i want to say thank
1: you dave to you and making the time it's been a fascinating conversation thanks i appreciate that Again, I want to say I'm really impressed with what you're doing at Safar Shaw and bringing you know some of these ideas into the law firm and giving particularly the young lawyers an opportunity to think about a different way, to approach the work that they do. I happen to be a big believer in the power and the importance of lawyers, whichever you know whomever their clients might be, even if they are big corporations, even if they are oil companies, I believe in lawyers doing their jobs. and I believe in people, trying to influence those big corporations, including oil corps, to do what they do in a more sustainable, green, uh, less damaging way for the benefit of the planet.
0: Absolutely. Dave, thank you for your time and uh, good luck with the book. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.